We've got Dr. Ron Andrews on the show today, and this is going to be an awesome episode. Ron is at the University of New Mexico, the only physical therapy school in the state, paired with the only medical school in the state. Ron has some really awesome experience working interdisciplinary, not only there at the school, but also on their ECHO program, which you're going to hear Ron talk a lot about. This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Pain Reframe. It's amazing when some of these challenges of geography force us to collaborate. What comes out of that? And I think that we can learn from circumstances like this to really think about how can we can scale across the country, across a whole multitude of providers to really reach everybody who's suffering from the chronic pain epidemic. So myself and co-host Dr. Tim Flynn really enjoyed this conversation with Ron Andrews, and we're sure you are going to as well. So without further ado, here is Dr. Andrews. Let's get into it. Well, Dr. Ron Andrews, we are so excited to have you on Pain Reframed. Would you mind giving the listeners a little bit of a background of where you're currently at and what you're up to down there in New Mexico? Sure, I'd be happy to. I'm happy to be a part of this process. As we talked a couple weeks ago, I think that management of, of pain patients and chronic pain is is a mandate to us as a profession and uh, all that I can do to help people really embrace some of the concepts and and feel better about managing these patients because we need to do that. Um, it's clearly part of our mission. Anyway, yes, I'm an associate professor here at the University of New Mexico Physical Therapy Program. We're an entry-level doctorate program, as everybody is, and we're the only one here in New Mexico. We're part of a medical school, and it's the only medical school in the state as well. And so we are very much uh, integrated with uh, my MD colleagues, as I, I choose to use the phraseology rather than we still hear a lot of my colleagues refer to them as the docs or the doctors, but since we are also of that level educationally, I try to refer to my MD colleagues or physicians, etc. It's a great kind of team environment here. There's not a lot of ego, so we're able to work across disciplines really quite well, as we'll probably get into later. But I've been here 27 years in this role. I was on the faculty at the University of Wisconsin in Madison before I came here, so I'm kind of an ancient PT coming up on 43 years of experience. Quite a bit of it, most of it in outpatient orthopedics and and certainly some in, in acute care. And then in the last probably seven or eight years, I've taken on a larger role specifically relative to chronic pain. Even though it's been on my radar, I remember starting to treat patients when fibromyalgia kind of became a, a new diagnosis in the 80s and really starting to try to understand that better and we've evolved a long ways I think along that line of diagnosing that and what it is but really trying to help understand where the patients are coming from and really try to embrace their situation and and take a helping attitude and figure out how to progress them and we've learned so much in pain science over the last 10 years it's been a fascinating area to now finally have a little bit more uh, of information and research and data to support what we do. But I think in a nutshell, that's where I am and have been from. My primary teaching here is orthopedic evaluation and manual therapy, which I've done for a long time. Ron, when you speak to us coming a long way, it's always encouraging to hear that. I guess I would love some of your musings on, you know, what in particular, you know, if you look at quote unquote, the old way of doing things, you know, when fibromyalgia first kind of came to light and this idea of this global kind of widespread pain of, you know, somewhat unknown etiology to, to how we're managing it nowadays in light of 
all of the pain science kind of movement forward, you know, what really specifically with patients do you feel like you're doing differently now in light of what we, what we know about patient management? I think there's some differences and some of it is just kind of validating what we figured by trial and error and as we've done a lot of things, I think, in PT over the years and yeah. probably medicine in general. It just validates that, you know, what we figured out worked has a basis for that working. But I remember initially with fibromyalgia, there was such a discussion about, well, was it really a diagnosis and was it truly a condition and, and what were the origins of it? And even its name, you know, fibromyalgia, the idea was, well, there was some kind of fibrous connective tissue change and these trigger points needed to be stretched and and you know kind of more aggressively managed and we realized that that wasn't the case there weren't those tissue changes and to stretch them aggressively just irritated things and made them worse and and so and now as we evolved into kind of central facilitation and and the idea of you know pain kind of looping and stimulation centrally that has nothing to do with peripheral origins we kind of realize that this kind of enhancement needs to be managed in a more, I think, dose intelligent manner. And we've realized that, you know, more light cyclic type loading and maybe some aerobic if they can do it and more large muscle recruitment tends to dampen down the central system a little bit more. And and I have to admit, I'm certainly not a leading edge uh, neurophysiologist along this line, but I've I've really enjoyed certainly all the work that's come out of Australia and people like Lorimore Mosley and others that have kind of really pushed us to understanding the system much more. It's a fascinating area. And we're, I think, starting to understand that the disconnect between tissue change and pain perception and how people respond. And then, of course, all the behavioral health aspects of it have been amazingly you know, relevant to realize how many of patients with chronic pain have had various abuse situations in their younger life and have a lot of cultural pressures and or enablements or influences on their pain perceptions and and how their life is kind of viewed by their family members and significant others. And it's really a, a very complicated in lots of ways phenomenon that we are seeing increasing on a rapid basis. A great area, I think, to kind of delve into the literature. There's a lot there. And I I can't begin to think I have a really great handle on it, but I'm working on it. I'm fortunate that Ron was one of my mentors way back in Wisconsin, Madison, <laughs> Wisconsin, in 1983, actually. A um, long time ago, yes. <laughs> but what's listening to you, I, I hear the same compassionate voice, the same inquisitive mind, the same curious mind that I remember I guess now over 35 years ago, <laughs> where they were really struggling to, you know, how can we do better with these right. folks? And some of those skills that we couldn't put our finger on, those skills of just compassionate listening and curiously trying to understand them, you still got that in your belly, I hear. Is that true? <laughs> uh, thanks, Tim. Thanks for the kind words. Yeah, I think that's what makes ability to work with this population, you know, so many of our colleagues struggle, you know, legitimately so, and not just us, I mean, our medical colleagues and pharmacology, everybody, I think, struggles a little bit with this population, and they can be challenging, and sometimes we don't succeed. Sometimes we can't really reach them on a level that we can be a team to you know, help them deal with the issues that they're faced with. And and it's sad because, and I think our medical system sometimes supports that with our very uh, 
pathoanatomical approach and you know people need facet injections and and surgeries and other things when we know that many times that's you know not a advantageous way to go and so i think we struggle in kind of embracing this population and not putting judgments on them and going well you know this chronic pain thing this fibromyalgia thing whatever and and so i do think it has to come from and probably the older we get and the more we interact with the world and life you get where you go there's something here and obviously the research has continued now to help us understand what that something is or at least get a grasp of it but ultimately it comes down to sitting and being an active listener as you said and not putting any preconditions or judgments on where that person is and try to do that of course with all of our patients but i think with the chronic pain patient it really has to be a sincere you know, I'm here to help you. I understand you're in pain. I can't imagine how horrible that must be. But then slowly helping them understand how limited some of their options are. I mean, they, they can't be pharmacologically managed effectively. They know that. They're not really surgical candidates, but yet their life is in a, a pretty poor place. And I will get to the point of being pretty direct with them and saying, you know, you're kind of circling the drain here. But we have ways to help you come back out of it, but it's not going to be easy. And they have to uh, be in the right place to hear that. It's like motivational interviewing or anything. And they have to uh, believe that you are sincere. And obviously you have to be in order to get that partnership that you need. And you have to help them understand that some days are just going to be terrible and they're going to have flares and they're going to have setbacks. But ultimately, and we see this with patients when we happen to get everything right, that we have taken them from really poor function, basically not doing anything or staying in bed all day, which is disastrous, to being, you know, certainly not pain-free most of the time, but able to go out and work in their gardens and, you know, play with their grandkids and, and go to their kids' weddings. And if you just help people understand that they can get there, and we don't succeed with everybody, obviously, but I think it does take that kind of endorsement, validation, belief, and know that you can ultimately help them. It's a challenge. Um, I will be the first to say that there's sometimes, and I have occasionally fired a patient who I just, you know, they weren't able to really come to where I needed them to be. And I said, this is not working for either one of us. But most of the time, I think, if you catch them at the right time in their progression, you can reach them. That's what we need to do. Otherwise, they're going to, I joke with the students, if we don't, they're going to end up opioid addicted and overdose. And, you know, it, it's back to uh, choose PT. It's our responsibility to do what we can to avoid that progress, you know. It does take a village. It creates a new, <laughs> it requires a new model of management not yes. one thing going on. And did you tell the listeners about ECHO and about what's happening down there in uh, University of New Mexico and, and that project and how it relates to this particular population? Project ECHO, I'll just give a very brief background, um, was started by one of our gastroenterologists in the early 2000s. When I was in Wisconsin, they had, they used the rural agriculture extension system to do some kind of online education to people in various more rural aspects of the state. Uh, New Mexico is extremely rural. I mean, everything outside of Albuquerque and Santa Fe and Las Cruces is extremely underpopulated and underserved. 
And this started with uh, this gastroenterologist who is from India and a very altruistic, uh, wonderful human being. And I treated him for a while for frozen shoulders. Maybe that's a HIPAA violation, but uh, and, uh, he started this under treating hepatitis C because at that time it was pretty involved and people had to come into Albuquerque sometimes from three or four hours away for extensive treatment, follow-ups and come back. And it was really logistically and financially um, very difficult to reach all the people that were infected. And so he started this kind of outreach concept of empowering local providers to manage these patients under more of the experts kind of supervision. But it's more than top-down telemedicine, and that's, if anything, that's what it isn't. It's intended to, and this is a culture and an altruism that he brings to it that empowers everyone who taps in to bring forth their cases, to have open discussion. You know, no question is a bad question. No case is, is inappropriate. And trying to have the people all participate and bring solutions in, it's very case-driven in that sense. But it's not just the experts sitting around the table telling people what to do, because that won't ultimately change practice. ECHO stands for um, Extension for Community Health Care Outcomes, and it's actually in 26 countries now and all over the United States. We do a couple of them for the military, one on extremity care and amputations. So it's a model of outreach, if you will, and empowerment of people in sometimes quite remote areas to learn how to manage complex cases. And it has a number of different disciplines. There's a rheumatology echo, there's a gastroenterology echo, there's all these different topic-based. But ours is chronic pain and opioid addiction is the one that we have has been going since about 2006 or seven, I believe. And it's very much the team that is here, which is referred to as the hub, and then people that call in either by phone or by video conference mechanisms, they're the spokes. And so on our hub team, it varies a little bit. We have a couple of physicians, one's an internist and one's a neurologist, who are both uh, very skilled at, one's a headache specialist and the other is kind of chronic pain. And they're very skilled in, in all the issues with opioid addiction and dosing and uh, milligram equivalents, morphine milligram equivalents, and how to manage patients, and, and very skilled at what alternative medications are available to wean people off, uh, buprenorphine and methadone and different ways to kind of manage patients. And then certainly having the naloxone and the, the drugs available to counter an overdose if it should happen, that's a big mission as well. But then we also have behavioral health people. We have counseling. We have an addiction psychiatrist who specifically works on addiction medicine and psychiatry, obviously. PT is there. We have a chiropractor who is fairly involved. And that's most of the hub team. But then we have other people who come on and off. And the way the sessions are structured is it's a two-hour session. We usually try to have two cases. Hopefully, people who are bringing information in from the outside bring cases to us. And that oftentimes happens or we try to have ones that we have patients that we have seen. And the cases are challenging, and they usually don't have all the answers. And so it, it stimulates people to, and it's structured in a way that everybody gets to chime in in their way or their thoughts about what's going on with this patient. They get to ask clarifying questions. It has a very specific rigor that how the cases are 
managed so that everybody can participate. And then we usually have a short didactic session of about a half an hour where it could be one of the, of the hub members or we bring in experts from the outside who do a kind of short and sweet didactic presentation that runs the gamut from uh, addiction in adolescence to how to do a physical therapy evaluation to um, headache management, lots of different topics that are done kind of in a short and sweet half-hour presentation. So it's an interesting model that has been very successful. And for the chronic pain opioid, it's very much a team education environment. And egos are put aside. Everybody is referred to equally. And the whole goal is to provide practitioners wherever they may be. And we have people coming in from all over the country on these sessions with kind of an understanding and a safety to learn about how to manage these very challenging patients. It's a great team. Ron, that is fantastic. I guess I have a two-part question. Um, the first one being, do you guys ever allow patients to be involved in those sessions as listeners or as an audience if things are obviously HIPAA sanitized. You know, Tim and I have been so surprised how many patients have listened to episodes where, you know, we've talked quite, you know, specifically about, you know, details of surgery and things that we thought folks would maybe understand. And they've really embraced it and felt like they they learned a lot and moved forward. You know, similarly, I look at some of Adrian Lowe's work, you know, working with even a real young population, even school age kids, how how much they're able to understand. A, do you guys allow patients to ever be involved or ever record these sessions and, and put them somewhere that patients might be able to listen and relate to? And then B, if people want to start that in their area, is there sort of some guidance you all give or is it truly an organic process where everybody kind of starts it under their own fruition? Yeah, good questions. We have not allowed patients to tap in and there's been some discussion about that. And it's really, I think, part of the kind of overall philosophy of, of the ECHO model that it's really intended to help providers give the care. And I think the feeling is that to change the kind of dynamic, if you will, of information exchange and the way the model operates to make it patient appropriate would be kind of defeating to the overall process of empowerment of the of the providers. Now, there's been some debates about that, but I think it's it's kind of a different level of discussion than what ours tend to be. You know, I hear exactly what you're saying of patients who want to learn more about the processing, but this venue I don't think lends itself to that as well without keeping the kind of robustness that it has as a tool. Now, we certainly, um, within our pain center here, do some of those types of educational classes. They're mostly run by behavioral health people to really help them understand. And we have participated, PT and other practitioners as well. I don't know that there's necessarily an avenue for, you know, kind of facilitating, mentoring others to start those. I think your, your statement of it being kind of organic based on the population that you see within your particular clinic environment is probably the place to start. And, and yeah, the explain pain people and NOI, and there's so many good resources, I think, out there on how to put this into packages the patient understand. And we certainly do that on a one-on-one -on -one basis with all of our patients. But when we have people come in by telephone, we ask everyone when we start the sessions to introduce themselves. And this has come up recently a little bit where 
if someone is there and does not introduce themselves, we don't know who they are, there is a tendency to ultimately cut them back off of the line because we don't know if they're patients or who they are exactly. And that may sound a little bit harsh perhaps, but we really want it to be a very transparent and uh, open session that everybody kind of knows who's there and what's going on and what we're doing. So we've kind of stayed away from the patient aspect of it. One other question I would have for you, it sounds like, I don't know if it's the nature of the ruralness in your area that really lends to a willingness, maybe even by necessity, of of having to kind of reach out geographically and and form bonds. Have you found that same culture right there at your school? It sounds like that's the only medical school and the only only PT school um, in the state. When you're thinking, as you guys are moving towards this this model of teaching, you know, a pain science-based approach and bringing in the new evidence, are you seeing the medical side of the university equally, I don't, I don't want to say gravitating towards it, but are you seeing the same affinity from the medical side of the program as you are from the physical therapy side of the program to incorporate these concepts in patient care? Absolutely. I mean, it really was started, this whole thing was started by the MDs. And then it kind of has evolved into this, really through the leadership of the gentleman I mentioned that started it, through his very non-egocentric, very you know altruistic, incorporative kind of mindset that makes this work. And when we've taught it and we've done this, you know, through grants and other things to the military and other people around the country and around the world have come here for training sessions and many of the members have gone out and done this. We've seen it done where it is a very top-down, you know, you are the experts and we are tapping in to your expertise. That works, but it's not what the ECHO model is about. The ECHO model is empowering all participants to be players because we all learn from different members. They have a different spin. And that's one of the things I think about our medical school. I mean, there's still, there's hierarchies, there's always hierarchies, but I think people that come here sometimes from other parts of the country to do residencies and other things. Sometimes as we joke, you know, New Mexico is the land of manana. Nobody gets in too big a hurry about things. And it'd be frustrating occasionally for someone who's a little more uh, energetic, if you will, (laughs) about things. But we get the job done ultimately. And one of the things that impressed me and why I came here and worked on and did my PhD here was just exactly that kind of collegiality where you can walk into pretty much anybody's office or set up a time and sit down and have a great collegial discussion that is very um, kind of welcoming. Again, there's always, you know, occasional exceptions and those get in the way all the time of anybody. But for the most part, I would say that is the culture here multidisciplinary environment. And, you know, all medical schools or all educational have tried to do more of the multidisciplinary type of approach to education, which presents many challenges. And we certainly haven't been successful at it on all levels. But I think from a collegial practice research standpoint, we really have tried to do that. And yeah, I think our rural environment, that's really what stimulated this in the first place. And I think where ECHO has maybe been the most successful has been in parts of the world where it is exactly that, where people are a long ways from access to high-level medical care and specialization. Those local providers have to have enough expertise to manage situations and, uh, and be comfortable enough to 
tap into the resources that are there and not feel like they're being talked down to or really not valued for the work that they're doing. And I think that's a key element when we train other people to do this, that that kind of culture is probably more important than any content that is distributed, which is just a kind of a fascinating model, I think. This has been a fascinating conversation, and we have a lot of listeners that are out in rural ports of this country as well as across the world that are listening. And could you provide them with how to get in touch with the ECHO program? Yeah, it's kind of a brainchild, obviously, that started here at the University of New Mexico. And so the URL is just echo, E-C-H-O, dot U-N-M, dot E-D-U. And that will get them to the ECHO homepage. Then from there, they'll have to navigate a little bit and see all the different clinics that are run and when they're run. But there's all the instructions there. And there's training modules that we do all the time for people that once a month we have an echo immersion where people come from all over and spend a day here, sometimes two days, learning the system and sitting in on echo clinics and really just trying to kind of understand and then take out to their regions how to set these up and do them. That's, again, the the kind of altruistic aspect of our our, uh, originator is to get this to as many people as they can and help everybody learn from it. But anybody anywhere can dial in or come in via Skype or any of the different tools and participate in these various clinics. I think some are maybe a little more refined perhaps than others, but we've started one, for example, one of our uh, pediatricians has been very active in you know the whole concussion management issues, and he is in the process of starting an echo on kind of post-concussion management and and questions and similar where they're all case-based. We encourage people to bring forth their their questions and problems and patient cases. And then there's a learning aspect with the didactic component. We encourage people to come in. We're always amazed when we run one of our pain ones, which are always on Thursdays every week from 12 to 2 Mountain Time. You know, we ask all the people to introduce themselves in the beginning, and there's usually 10 or 15 or sometimes 25 people who are connecting in by telephone or or video conference. It's amazing when somebody will tap in from Boston or North Dakota, or so we're always looking for people to uh, participate. Ron, that's awesome. Thanks so much for that. You're combining a couple things that we've heard over the past year doing a lot of these podcasts that have been really successful. You know, that ability to, to reach out across space, first of all. You know, we've talked to folks um, developing applications, doing online. Beth Darnell had some amazing stuff in that direction. But we're realizing that the one-on-one in-person is not going to solve the scale of the problem that we have. We have right, to find ways right. to reach out. And geographically, you know, to be able to reach out, be multidisciplinary and geographically spread. Right are huge parts of the, of the solution. For listeners who want to reach out to you directly, can you leave your calling card at all? Sure. Andrews at salud, S-A-L-U-D dot U-N-M dot E-D-U. Yeah, interestingly, along that line, we track, we've done this with the military echoes. We've done it for the Navy and the, and the Army for several years, and now we're starting it with this extremity care with Walter Reed being the hub that we've kind of been trying to train them or work with the ECHO model. But one of the things they've tracked with the military is the amount of opioid prescriptions because underlying this certainly is reducing opioid usage, you know, has been a common theme because of all the issues that we know about with this. And we have seen in our in our data that the number of scripts have gone down pretty significantly. And as a state, 
our opioid overdose is finally dropping over the last three or four years. And I really think that this educational kind of mission that we have launched is, has played a role with that, where we're seeing providers realize that there's alternatives. And certainly PT is one of them, maybe one of the, I mean, that's on everybody's radar. And, but as I mentioned in the beginning, we as a profession have to also step up to that charge and go, yeah, I can recognize perhaps some of these signs of someone sliding down the chronic road and I need to do all I can to prevent that. It's obviously a lot easier to prevent it than it is to fix it once it's there. I think getting the word out that there are a lot of other choices than using opioids because we had such a poor information on the addictive capabilities of opioids through the 90s and all the stuff of that is very fascinating and what happened to get us to where we are. But helping people understand, especially in the front lines of physicians who are the script writers, there's a lot better ways to manage these patients, a lot safer ways. That clearly is our mission. And I think there is success across the country on that. You're right. You can't do it one at a time. You have to try to get that message out to as many people and give them options. You can't just say, well, you know, don't prescribe opioids, especially for people that are on pretty high doses and have been for long periods of time. It's a very challenging thing to bring them back down to reasonable levels and to manage them in that context. It's not easy. And so having these support groups and people that can help everybody understand this problem is huge. Excellent. Well, Ron, thank you. And congratulations on, on being a part of that success. I mean, for us to hear... Uh, thanks opioid prescriptions you know, going down and things going in the right direction and more providers getting educated. I mean, that, that ultimately yep. is what it's all about. So, so thank you so much for your time, sir. And yeah, we'll, we'll get all this information on Echo in the show notes and make sure everybody has everything they need to get in touch. So thanks again. We appreciate having you on the show. Oh, you bet. Thanks for having thank me. You. It was fun. Thanks, Ron. Take care of both of you. So cool to... Just hear that compassionate voice, you know, decades and decades into doing this and working with patients. It's funny how how some people burn out and how other people really hang on to that compassion and empathy. And that really drives their inquiry and their curiosity. And it leads to doing things like Ron has done and being kind of a spark and fuel for this ongoing echo movement. It is going to be wonderful to track these folks as they are engaging in the armed services um, across their rural state and across the country and across the world. So huge thanks to Ron for coming on. And thanks to all of you for being here. Really appreciate all the social media engagement. Thanks for everyone who joined the Pain Reframe Facebook page. We had a huge additional members coming in last week and a lot of great discussion there. So by all means, hop in that forum and, and chat up uh, Tim and I and everybody else in the group. As always, ISPinstitute.com. That's where all of our sponsor ISPI's courses are. We've got the Align Conference coming up in June and so many great things there. So please check that out and let us know if you have any questions at all. Other than that, get back in clinic and make some miracles. Thanks all. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.